Hello and welcome to the Moodle Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Lucy Sherwood and today we're talking all about neurodiversity. My guest today is Lizzie Summerfield, who is a neurodiversity advocate. I think you're really going to love this episode. Let's get started. Okay. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, yeah. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Okay, firstly, let's start with obviously the most important question of this whole podcast is about what is neurodiversity and what forms does neurodiversity take and what does it include? Uh, so I think neurodiversity is like best explained in relation to the concept of biodiversity. So if you think like there is almost limitless variety of life on Earth, there is equally almost limitless varieties in the form that a human's brain can kind of take. The term's like quite relatively new. It was coined in the late 90s and it's both, I think, a new way of looking at neurological disability, but it's also a human rights movement. So if you just take the new way of looking at disability first, like historically and honestly, still in a lot of contexts today, like the medical model of disability is what is dominant, right? Like essentially, if you have a brain functioning that is different from what is normal, you're treated as impaired, like you're pathologized. Um, So in opposition to that model, you have other models like the social model of disability, which kind of contextualizes disability to a person's environment and says, you know, you're only disabled to the extent that um, your environment is unaccommodating of you. And similarly, like the neurodiversity paradigm kind of seeks to move away from the medical model and the pathologization of disability um, and states that actually, no, things like autism, ADHD, Tourette's, dys- dyslexia, OCD, these are all kind of natural variations in how a human brain can appear. So they don't need to be treated or cured and there's nothing inherently wrong with people who have these kinds of brains and work in that kind of way. And because it's like that's quite a revolutionary idea when you think about it as compared to how we've always seen these things when people with different brain companies were like institutionalized and things like that. So it kind of naturally leads itself also into being this human rights movement because by embracing our identities and wanting to sort of be proud of them in the same way that other, other minority groups are doing, we are naturally being quite like revolutionary and driving, pushing for our own human rights. So yeah, it's, it's quite complex. It covers a lot of things, but it's ultimately like a very positive movement, I think. I love that summary. What sparked your interest and why are you so passionate about this topic in general? So I was diagnosed as autistic and ADHD when I was 30 years old, so a few years ago now. And when that happened, it was like a million different light bulbs going off in my head. So like everything that I was struggling with at the time was cast into a new light, but also like everything that had happened in my past. It was kind of like like watching dominoes fall down in reverse in my brain over and over again as I was like, oh, that's why that happened to me. Oh, that's why that happened to me which was obviously like a huge thing to go through personally and mostly good. Like it was mostly very like empowering, but I also had this like other scarier moment of realizing that the struggles that I was going through were in no way unique to me. So like the more I listened to stories of others in the community, I saw the patterns of mistreatment and misunderstandings and ableism that were just all too common for neurodivergent people. But yeah, it really changed like all of my priorities when I like went through all of this and had that kind of realization. Like previously, I had what many people would consider a dream job. Like I, I was working as a corporate lawyer in London and it was all amazing. And I kind of walked away with that, from that to be able to like prioritize living authentically as a neurodivergent person and also being able to spend my time 
like really focusing on this cause in multiple ways. So it's become my special interest as an autistic person, quite honestly. So yeah, a lot of my focus is just on getting the message out there about neurodiversity and the importance of training specifically on the subject, because at the moment, I think there's just a lot of people who have no awareness, no idea, and therefore they have no idea about the potential harm that they're also causing the neurodivergent people in their lives. So having that awareness and being able to make like very small adjustments to be slightly more accommodating to people, it just makes such a huge difference. So yeah, that's, I don't know, that's, that's my summary. That's great. And that's what this podcast is all about, making those accommodations and how teachers can make accommodations for students. One of the common questions that I think people get confused about is the the term neurodiversity and and how it's different from the term neurodivergence. If you could explain that, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So I like to think of like neurodiversity includes everybody, even if you haven't got ADHD, autism, Tourette's, any of these other different neurotypes or what we would previously call conditions, that fall under what is neurodivergent. Even if you don't have any of that, then you are considered neurotypical. But and that means that your brain functioning is like that of the majority of people, and therefore, like society's norms are accommodated to you. Like things that we consider to be polite or successful, um, those those are very much neurotypical definitions of polite and successful same with how we teach and how we work all of those things are very much accommodate are set up to accommodate a neurotypical brain functioning and if you have any neurotype other than neurotypical like uh like adhd autism dyslexia etc then you are neurodivergent so it's like a subset basically of people that fall into that neurodivergent category and the reason they say like neurodiversity includes everyone is because even within that neurotypical category like I, I think some people have a kind of a logic reaction where they hear that word neurotypical but we're not saying that everybody in that category's brain is exactly the same because neurodiversity means the opposite of that right we are acknowledging that even within that neuro- neurotypical category everyone has an individual brain functioning everyone's brain is absolutely unique so yeah I think it can help to think of neurodivergent as an umbrella term to cover anyone who has a neurotype other than neurotypical and neurodiversity is describing the natural variation between all of our brains. Yes, that's perfect. And it comes back to that biodiversity comment that you made earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so why do you think that it's so important that educators be aware of different neurotypes and be aware of you know each individual student's needs? I think often educators are in the best position to spot someone's neurodivergence, quite honestly. And like I'm hearing this more and more, like it's incredibly common for parents not to be able to see the child's neurodivergence because they in fact are neurodivergent themselves and they don't know it. So they don't think it's unusual behavior or they they don't think it's strange. They think everybody struggles that way. And it's just not true. (laughs) So I think that's that's one one side of it that's like they're kind of someone who has a lot of contact with with the person but not necessarily is of the same like genetic makeup that they can't see what's like right in front of them. And then if you look at other forms of education as well, like even into tertiary education or even just like coursework that you're doing, the educators are in a good position to be able to spot patterns where like students might be struggling or like basically spot patterns between students as well and see sort of more at a holistic level, whereas a parents obviously can only see for their, their one for one child or their, you know, their, their few children. So I think, yeah, they're in a really powerful position also to be able to signpost to support and uh, potential diagnosis resources rather than like also punishing that student for being neurodivergent. It's a very important position because educators give 
students a lot of feedback, right? And neurodivergent students, whether they whether you know they're neurodivergent or not, a lot of the feedback we get is negative <laughs> because they're not complying with societal norms and things. So I think it also like being aware of neurodiversity, how it can present, also means that you can have a real impact on on a student, whether they feel shame about the neurodivergent traits or whether they feel empowered by them, whether they have the right resources to actually like rely on them or whether they're sort of trying to mask their traits. Those are all very much impacted by you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's very important to be able to have a step back and consider whether like a student is actually causing a problem or like they're actually struggling academically or whether there might be an alternative explanation that's actually just their brain gut. That's really great. Let's delve a little bit deeper into what or how different types of neurodivergence impact how students learn. Yeah, so I think maybe I'll just start with an example from my own life, right? The stereotype for autistic people, for example, is that they are excellent at maths. I am very good at maths, right? But for me, this has been very up and down depending on my environment and the way that I was taught. Like I was either at the top of the class or I was failing. And I think that can also like be, should be really like a red flag to educators, right? When you see that kind of thing, because obviously like I, I have a brain for it, but I'm also, I was very much struggling. So for, for example, like when I moved from primary school to secondary school, I was so used to the way that my primary school had taught maths and how they communicated and what the expectations were and the examples that they used that I, when I moved schools, I started failing maths for the first time. And it wasn't the only time as well, like, when we started doing trigonometry, I've just recently learned that for a lot of autistic people, we conceptualize space and shapes differently. So for me, like how trigonometry was explained to me, just it sounded like gobbledygook. Like I just couldn't process it to this day. Like I have no idea about trigonometry. And yet, like for all the other math subjects, I was like excelling. So I think noticing being able to, like for me, just knowing that like how those things were explained to me um, wasn't working for my brain. And seeing, being able to see like the patterns there of like, oh, she's failing this, but she's like really good there. That's, that's strange what's going on. Yeah. So just like explain kind of like how my environment and my teacher really impacted my ability to perform academically. I think those impacts of being neurodivergent, like it's really hard to say overall, like, oh, this is how it's going to show up or this is how it's going to impact a person. Even if you could say like, oh, dyslexia, like people will struggle to read or ADHD, people will struggle to pay attention for that long. Those are like very broad generalizations. So I think it's really important to also like, one, look at the individual, but to look beyond the stereotypes that you'll see because it might not necessarily be like reflected accurately in each individual person. Yes, and there is a lot of talk in the community about how, you know, a lot of our stereotypes are based on you know, old studies and there aren't a lot of new ones that reflect, for example, women that are neurodiverse and how, you know, historically young boys have been diagnosed as ADHD fairly readily, whereas in comparison, women haven't. It's really interesting. Um, but that that's a really good point that you made about how we should look beyond the stereotype a little bit because sometimes we just don't know enough and that's the actual problem, which is why exactly. it's kind of, you know, spot those patterns and start to investigate a little bit. That kind of brings us naturally to the next thing I want to talk about, which is early intervention. So signs that teachers might spot and seeking help for students, a great one of those, as you just mentioned, was just spotting things that don't quite add up. Are there any other things that you think educators can be on the lookout for in the classroom, whether it be a virtual classroom or an in-person classroom? I think what you were just talking about is actually a really important point. Like like women obviously being diagnosed much later in life than men um, as autistic and ADHD, it happens with both of them. It's not necessarily because 
they there is a female type of ADHD or female type of um, autism it's because they um, manage their traits and mask their traits very differently like a lot of women because of societal expectations on women uh, naturally mask their traits to a very very high degree and so we might we won't be presenting as that hyperactive little boy in the classroom right we're often presenting as a very quiet little girl or the girl that like daydreams out the window like it's yeah it's very much specific to each individual but then often a lot of the hyperactivity is very much internally directed so I think yeah having a good relationship with your students and kind of understanding also what's going on for them internally is very important because for so long these things have been diagnosed and even the diagnostic criteria have been developed based on how these things present externally and how it impacts other people but that's not really what we should be doing right like it really should be based on the person's internal experience so I think yeah talking to your students and getting to know them and understanding what's going on for them internally is always going to be yeah and I think also listening to like if you want to sort of get good at recognizing these signs, right, the place to go for that information is to listen to neurodivergent adults. There's a lot of people sharing their experiences online now. Like that's just the best tool that you have to be able to then take those experiences and be able to recognize them in your students. Like diagnostic criteria, out of date, like not necessarily the best tool, the best resource to rely on. Those experiences that people are sharing online, it's, it's invaluable. Um, yeah, and then obviously I would just add, like if we're, if we're going in for the early intervention conversation, like being very sensitive when you approach those conversations as well, because the person obviously might have no idea. Um, they might have, be very sensitive about kind of someone suggesting this to them. But yeah, being prepared with like having done your own research and resources that you can point them to, like that's always, always going to be a good thing as well. That's great. It's really important that sensitivity, especially when they might not know what is going on, they're not seeing it because it's their normal which is yeah, exactly. very important to note. Okay, so I'd love to talk about communication, sensory needs and other individualistic methods that teachers can use to help with learning for the future of this amazing neurodiverse world that we're in. Coming back to the phrase, like we often say, if you've met one autistic person, then you've met one autistic person. And we say this because autism is a spectrum where individual traits can be extreme at either end and appear like in any combination so that sounds like a very vague statement but to put it into an example like if, if you take that stereotype we've been talking about of the like young, young white boy um for an autistic person it would be that they don't show any empathy right that would be the stereotype um and that might be true that is true for some people but a lot of other autistic people ex- report like extremely high levels of empathy to the point where they get overwhelmed and they don't know how to respond so it can manifest externally in the same way but the experience internally is very differently and that kind of hypo or hyper experience can happen like with all of our autistic traits and in any kind of com- combination so we might be hyper empathetic but then hypo like sensory stimulus um, so that can mean we have like these very, very spiky profiles. So like if you take that kind of idea of if you've met one of us, you've met one of us, extend that to all the other neurotypes as well. Each student is going to be very uniquely impacted by their own traits and they're going to need their own kind of unique accommodations. That said, there are a lot of things that you can do. I think we'll probably come to this a little bit later, but you can do to make your environment like more inclusive upfront so that it's more likely that more neurodivergent students will be default accommodated like neurotypical students already are. Um, But if we go back to your point about like 
communication as an example, there are multiple ways that that might be impacted by different types of neurodivergence. So for example, some people might need to have all of their communication or at least all verbal conversations followed up in writing because they have like auditory processing disorder and that's very common with ADHD and autism to struggle to comprehend verbal information. So they might need to have that in writing. Whereas other people might struggle to read and struggle to process written information because of dyslexia or because of ADHD, where it's just too much for them on one page, and they might prefer verbal conversations. Um, and then for some people, like an in-person conversation might be too much because their sensory environment is too much for them to be able to concentrate on what you're saying. And for others, like video calls might be better than phone calls because they need facial cues to pick up on tone and meaning. So like... It can become quite complicated and because of that, like giving options and letting the individual decide which of those options is best for them is always going to be like the best approach. And it's similar with sensory experiences, like we're all very, very unique on that front. So some of us will find like certain noises or textures completely unbearable and like experience physical pain from them. Whereas others will find those same noises or textures like pleasant and seek more of them. Um, so in the same with like how we use sensor experiences to regulate ourselves when we become dysregulated or if we're going to a shutdown or meltdown. Um, some people listening to music will help them in that situation. Others, it's going to make it even worse. So yeah, it's really important to just like be led by the individual because they're really the expert on their own reality and what they're experiencing. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes it easier for in e-learning, for example, is everyone can be in their own environment and that allows them to have their own, you know, they've got their own desk chair, they've got their own, you know, maybe they've got sensory items around them that help. Maybe they've got, they've got a fidget toy, you know, those things do help accommodate as kind of a default, which is fantastic. But one of the most mm -hmm. important things that we talk about at Moodle is having various forms of content, like the most important content has to be in various forms because we really need to get that key message across. So a great example that we use is, you know, if we're going to do a video, we've also got to have it written, you know, we've got yeah. to have the content written and there are other ways of making it more accessible. You know, subtitles are a great example, transcripts. And as you said, some people need communication followed up by text because of the auditory processing issue. And that is potentially something that you could have at the start of a of a course you know okay what are your communication preferences how do you like to be communicated with just tick a box and then that allows each individual to think about it and consider the multiple options if you just have one way of communicating with your students it's just email or nothing that might make it harder for some people yeah or definitely, course, definitely. You know, whatever and we're be. seeing that in um in multiple contexts, right, like um, the pandemic and working from home, for example, has led to the biggest increases in employment of disabled people in ever. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely more accessible to us when we're able to control a certain amount of our own environment. Awesome. And that kind of actually comes to a great point, socialisation. So one of the things about e-learning that's interesting is often there'll be forums or there'll be social media groups, there'll be WhatsApp channels, there'll be things like that. Can we talk a little bit about how neurodivergent people socialize differently? Yeah, I think this is a big one. And I think it's like, there are, I think there's like specific things, right? Like autism, for example, is it is a relational communication based disability. Um, like I often say that autism is its own language and its own culture. And that adds like a very unique layer of complexity for autistic people when you're navigating those kind of group environments. But if you kind of zoom out from that and look at neurodivergent people as a whole, 
I would say that um, what we're saying earlier about like neurodivergent people being given so much negative feedback in their lives, like there's an often cited statistic that a 10 year old with ADHD has received 20,000 more negative bits of feedback in their life than a neurotypical child. Right. So we can often um, develop from this. We can develop social anxiety and just not even, even if we don't develop social anxiety, we develop rejection sensitive dysphoria. So we become like very, very affected when we feel we perceive we're being rejected. So like interacting in those things can be like very, very scary for us as well. And also we don't know often social rules, what's expected of us and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it can be quite intimidating for us to, to, to join those kind of spaces. It can be a lot easier for neurodivergent people to socialize within their neurotype just because it's people that kind of get that shared experience. And there's a lot of like understanding and validation there. But having said that, I don't think it's like neurodivergent students should be kept separate. I don't think that's the answer at all. I think like one sort of mainstream environment is definitely like the way to go, but making that environment like more welcoming and ensuring that everyone who's participating in it has a really good understanding of neurodiversity so they're not kind of making judgments about people um, and instead like pro- approaching people with curiosity it's definitely really important. I wanted to talk about how to give feedback and you were talking about how how much negative feedback that someone that's autistic might have received in their lifetime and that is just it's awful isn't it so we really need to become better as a society at being better at giving feedback <laughs> yeah i think people I think they're good at giving feedback and then like i'm like oh um yeah from school all the way through to working you know it's always yeah. an important skill that everyone should know how to do um, definitely yeah and i think um rethinking like i you hear a lot about these like compliment sandwich etc but i think rethinking the fact that you you are like necessarily right about your feedback I, I think that it should that shouldn't be your default position right I think approaching the situation with curiosity um is always a way to go because even if the person is not neurodivergent it might be that you've just misunderstood something or misperceived something and if they are neurodivergent like it's gonna especially if they've got like a pathological demandance profile of autism like the feedback is very, very difficult for us to take if we if we are PDA because we kind of perceive anything like like as a demand, we're just going to stop doing it, even if it's positive feedback. So I think approaching fitness feedback is like, oh, hey, I noticed you did X thing. Like, can you tell me what was going on for you there? And then let them explain, like actively listen to them, like make sure you're listening and then explain like, oh, how I perceived it is why, which like I understand I might be misinterpreting you. And then like how can we work together to find a solution so that we're both comfortable moving forward? I think framing it as questions and as a collaborative kind of exercise rather than just statements about like, you did this thing and it's wrong. Like it's, it's going to go down so much better and also like always throw in some positives. I think that, that kind, of, kind of counts with like whatever you're doing as well, like throw in a few good things you've noticed as well. So you, they, the person's like obviously oh, not just feeling like you're perceiving all the negative things about them. I think that approach, like jumping in with curiosity instead of jumping in with judgment is the way to go. Yeah, and I think that comes back to instruction as well. Like if a teacher instructs a student to complete a project and the instructions aren't 100% clear to the student, then however they choose to take it isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just shows that our brains do work differently. And exactly. It's just, that's just like creativity, right, or literal thinking. It's just those natural kind of traits that we have which are not bad things. 
That's great. I want to talk about accessibility online courses and real classrooms, which are both really important under this topic. There are a heap of organizations that have developed principles for creating neurodiverse and a neurodiverse inclusive environment in online classrooms. So I will link some great resources in the show notes for anyone that is interested in reading those. But I have adapted some of the principles to specifically apply them to Moodle and e-learning. So I'd love to talk about a few of them with you. So one of them is sensory environment. So of course, as I said earlier, e-learning tends to lend itself better to be a good fit for those who have sensory needs because they can be in their comfortable setting doing whatever suits them. So one of the things that we recommend is to, if you do require video conferencing at any point, that teachers should say at the beginning of a course that students don't actually necessarily have to have their video on so students can be comfortable in their own environment. Is there anything else you can suggest in that area? Yeah, no, I think that that's like super important because one of the big things about like, like when I'm sitting in a classroom or even when I'm sitting in a work environment, I really struggle with being perceived. Like, and I think it comes back to that negative feedback thing of like, there's always someone watching you, watching what you're doing wrong. And so like, yeah, being, feeling like I'm being watched is like, I can't focus. I just, I will just sit there pretending to focus. So yeah, and being able to turn your video off, especially also if you're like being like overwhelmed or like meltdown, shutdown kind of situations, being able to do that and just give yourself a little bit breathing space is super important. Like for me personally, I think some of the things that I like about like the online space is like, being able to watch videos in double time because of my ADHD. Like I just can't listen to people that speak at a normal pace. So I get too impatient. And then I think we talked about earlier, like having the slides and having the transcripts also to help like my auditory processing. So I can go back and look at them afterwards, but don't have to rewatch all the videos. Yeah. And then for me, like with online courses, I really need like also frequent reminders of what I'm meant to be doing, um, which kind of keeps a sense of like urgency because um, people with ADHD are often motivated by that kind of sense of urgency so that kind of keeps me interested in the culture and going through it um but yeah those are like very unique to me kind of things that help me in online learning uh, I'm sure you have like a lot more that you guys implement as well yeah so one of the things we suggest is predictability as well and I think you kind of spoke to that a little bit just then how you were saying it's great to know where you're meant to be up to. So having like, okay, this is set out for week one, week two, week three, whereas a self-paced course can be more difficult for someone, for example, with ADHD because that urgency is not there. Yeah, you're not going to finish it. <laughs> you're yeah. going to really love it at the start and then just yeah, yeah. not be able to finish it. But totally. Yes, great one. So having clear procedures around, you know, within your middle course for different scenarios will help maximise predictability. You can also increase predictability of a course with a really clear content flow so that might include a course outline and keeping every single section consistent like this is for week one this is week two this is for week three so that's that's a great one another one we suggest is to be really clear so this is this is a very basic language one but avoiding jargon using plain language being really clear about instruction and what the desired outcome is and we did talk about that a little bit within the feedback section so it is best to avoid clutter wherever you can, because it can split focus in, a, in an online course. And if you're using terms a student may not know, the best way to make it more accessible is to actually put a glossary in there. So for video content, maybe you want to also include subtitles, transcript, and make sure the speaker's really clear. So there are a few little things within that section of being clear, but we did, yeah, we did talk about them a little bit earlier. Yeah, and I think that's, um, that's really important, especially for like the autistic side of me, right? When I start a new course, I 
need to have all of the information up front. Like, I, I need to know exactly like what I'm going to need, like what, how I'm going to be assessed, like what you're going to provide me, when it's going to be provided, like when you're going to check up on me. Like, I need to know all of those things right at the beginning. I need to have like way, way more information and in a very, very clear format. <laughs> Another one that we, we always stress is to show the key information. So obviously within an e-learning course, there's so much information, but you, you need to make sure that the way you design the course has all of the key messages as the hero. So all of the key messages and concepts, you want to use hierarchical design, you want to use additional contrast and other design elements to make sure that, you know, the key key learnings that people are going to undertake within the course are really clear to every student. So it might mean presenting them in different content, content formats. So presenting them in different ways and enabling the student to digest them in a way that suits them. So maybe that what might mean, you know, you've got a reading on one topic, but then you've also got a video or we've got a panel discussion. You know, there's different ways and some of them are really simple, but you can present content in an alternative format. Maybe you want to add an audio version for those who would rather listen than read content as well. So, yeah, you've you've already kind of spoken about that. So I think that that's okay. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely... Yeah, that's really important because even if I'm doing all the things or even if I'm listening at double speed and I'm like, I've got notes so I can, um, I don't know, don't have to writing notes while I'm trying to listen. Uh, it can, I can, I can, they can just be stuff that I just do not process like from a video. So if it's followed up with a worksheet or like a quick summary or something like that, like I'm much more likely to, to take stuff in. We do have this really cool feature, which is, it's a way you can make video immersive and it's called branching scenarios. And what it is, is you can add different buttons into a video. You might've seen a similar thing on Netflix shows semi-recently, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. So what you do is change up the content format and it's a bit of like gamification and experiential education, a little bit of storytelling, choose your own adventure kind of thing. Whereas you continuously prompt the learner to make decisions within it. So the way that you utilize them is to, you know, provide them different choices and allow them to take, take charge, which is really cool. And feedback is provided, you know, in a dynamic manner. So it enables students to understand the result as they're doing it. It's a really cool integration for Moodle, which I'll add in the show notes as well, because I think that one's a really interesting one that I would love to test out as a learner. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I think especially for people with ADHD, right, the more you can turn into games, the better. <laughs> it drives like the novelty, urgency, like the things that our interest, our nervous system kind of thrives on. Um, yeah, that, that sounds great. <laughs> Dopamine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the other thing you did talk about a little bit at the start, which was, you know, when it comes to that motivation of deadlines, So I want to talk about timing. So one of the things that I suggest is to give all assignments with a reasonable time allocated. So well in advance, as you said earlier, you like to know what's coming and when it's coming. So I think minimizing those last minute requests is really important and not setting that expectation at the start of a course that students need to reply immediately to everything that comes their way. Because yeah, that that itself is not very accommodating. No, exactly. And I think it's interesting, right, because it accommodates, like, multiple different neurotypes as well. Like, for the autistic side of me, like, that helps me to feel, like, a lot less overwhelmed because I can I can plan, I can make my own schedules, I can feel, like, in control of that. But also with ADHD, we have a real tendency to 
want to leave things to the last minute until they become urgent because we thrive on that kind of urgency but ultimately if we're, if we're living our lives that way like very consistently then we're going from emergency to emergency to emergency and it's really not good for our nervous system so it can also help us to implement our own kind of good strategies to to stay on top of our learning rather than leaving things to the last minute as we're kind of naturally inclined to do that's great and I think the final one that I that I really wanted to highlight was being flexible so for teachers and educators to be flexible with their approach and not just to provide the same kind of course content and do things the way they've always done just because they've always done them that way. And so I think it's really important to ask for feedback from students at the end of the course and be actually be prepared to take it on board. So, you know, as you said earlier, you've met one autistic person, then you've met one, but it's still really important because accommodations don't just help one person. They'll, you know, the more accommodating you can be, the better for everyone. Yeah, um, and I, I think like, a lot of the time, like, if someone makes a suggestion because it's going to accommodate them, like, other people won't even realise that it would help them until they hear it out loud and then they're like, oh, yeah, I would really like that too. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. And I've heard a few people talking about that recently. Like, accommodations don't just help neurodivergent people, they help all people. You know, sometimes having, you know, a, whether it's a quiet room at university or whatever it might be, it can help a multitude of people that need that, that don't realise that they need that, especially for those that are undiagnosed as well. It's really important. Exactly. Or you've just, yeah, you've got something big going on in your personal life, whatever. Like there are so many different reasons why you could need to take, you know, take space for yourself. Is there any accessibility of real in-person classrooms that you would like to talk about? Is there anything else that you feel like we haven't hit with the other suggestions? In, in physical classroom? Yeah. Um, I feel, yeah, I think personally there's like quite a lot to do there, mainly around, yeah, the sensory experience because it's like quite strictly re- regulated, especially if you think back to like primary school, secondary school. Um, like I can remember being called out in assembly because I took my jumper off and then because I was obviously I was overstimulated and like trying to regulate my body, but I couldn't regulate my body temperature. So I took my jumper off and then I was like, oh no, I'm actually cold. So I put it back on and then I got told off for taking my clothes on and off. Um, and I can remember that from when I was like 10 years old. So I think like more work needs to be done to allow students to listen to their bodies and take their blazers off if they need to and go to the bathroom when they need to. It's so important because neurodivergent people for many reasons, we already struggle with like interoception, like understanding our body's internal sensations. And so forcing us to like not listen to our needs can make that even worse and have like very long-term consequences for us. So I think in that space, there's a lot of a lot of work to be done about like why do we need these rules other than for control? There's no there's no real reason behind it. So yeah. And I think also just what we were talking about before about like really struggle to be perceived by other people. Um, and so like also making those kind of like timeout spaces and like quiet spaces available without gatekeeping them, just like letting people kind of use them when they need to or use air defenders when they need to, so they can get a break from those kind of experiences of like being perceived or being overwhelmed in that kind of environment. Those, those things like, yeah, really need some work. <laughs> and I think that all comes back to that key concept that you talked about earlier, which is approaching with curiosity, not judgment you know, having that as the the main thing that you think, oh, you know, I might have some internal bias about, you know, what has to happen here or, you know, how this has to go, but maybe I can just ask them what's going on for them first before judging them. Exactly, exactly. Well, this has been so fantastic. Thank you so much. 
I wanted to make some suggestions about how to learn more about this topic, more about you, any recommended resources for educators or learning institutions that you'd like to recommend. I can't overstate how important it is to learn from lived experience. So I think if you start Googling on this topic and more like, especially for things like autism, you will find a lot of pathologizing medical model information. And that is not where we want you to go. <laughs> there are lots of lived experience educators like myself who share like a lot of free content online on every social media platform you can think of. You'll be able to find some of us. And we also work with you, right, uh, either through one-on-one consulting or things like training programs. I do coaching. Um, like there's a lot of ways that we're trying to sort of help our community and get this message out there. So we're also willing to help you. I personally have a collective, which is like an online platform that you can join where I also post content specifically for allies and for employers. So it's like longer form content than I post on social media like more complex more in depth so it's a good place to learn as well it's called the new deal for neurodiversity collective if you want to search that one and that's actually how i found you for this interview today no so, amazing <laughs> great resource a wonderful newsletter and everything so yeah definitely sign up for that thank you so much everyone for listening and thank you so much lizzie summerfield for being our guest we'll catch you all next episode on the middle podcast bye for now